Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer. I'm just uh, here, hoping you're all doing well, staying safe, keeping your mouths covered, keeping, uh, keeping the, trying to keep the curve down instead of, like, straight in the other axis. You know, it's a good thing to uh, keep you inside and keep you occupied. Bunnyslippers.com. Oh my goodness, why would you want to go outside? There's so many different animals' novelty slippers that you can wear. I'm not making light of everything that's going on outside, but damn it, look at those slippers. They are nice. And, um, bunnyslippers.com. They're damn nice. No, uh, check out their Highland Cow slippers. They're shaggy bowls that look really cool. And I, I have to say, they're really nice and really nice and warm. And they've got so many other things. They've got, uh, like, different things that you can put on your feet of things that you like. Bunnyslippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com, too. Great company. Uh, works in conjunction with Bunnyslippers.com to give you uh, some of the best 80s outfits that you can find on the internet. Just, just like Chris Knight from Real Genius, Val Kilmer's character. I've got the Revenge of the Nerd shirts that I love. Am I wearing one right now? No, I'm actually wearing an official uh, PGTTCM shirt that you can find at the store show, or uh, um, uh, show shop, at the show shop, the show store. Uh, you can, it's a direct link to our t-shirts that you can uh, buy to help support the show. Also, t-shirts for Articulate Warbling, new one coming up soon, and a uh, new episode coming up soon, new t-shirt coming up soon new t-shirts for uh new episodes for dave's underground goat shenanigans and new t-shirts already up i'm always coming up with new t-shirts idea and thank you so much for supporting the show by buying my t-shirts and founditemclothing.com's t-shirts and bunnyslippers.com and you know what we're probably going to have some new sponsors in august as the show grows and Gross. Thank you all new listeners. New listeners, we uh, kicked past the 2,000 mark in uh, followers officially on Podbean. We're still somewhere in the 30K daily listeners. Thank you so much for sharing and telling people about us. If you want to follow us, we are People's Cthulhu Podcast, Black Clock Audio Tales, everywhere else. Kind of poking around on Twitter here and there. Mostly on Instagram, doing Facebook. Always do Facebook, because it's on my phone. And yeah, so help the show, check out the other shows I produce, and here's some Algernon Blackwood. The Occupant of the Room He arrived late at night by the yellow diligence, stiff and cramped after the toilsome ascent of three slow hours. The village, a single mass of shadow, was already asleep. Only in front of the little hotel was there noise and light and bustle, for a moment. The horses, with tired, slouching gait, crossed the road and disappeared into the stable of their own accord, their harness trailing in the dust, and the lumbering diligence stood for the night where they had dragged it, the body of a great yellow-sided beetle with broken legs. In spite of his physical weariness, the schoolmaster, reveling in the first hours of his ten-guinea holiday, felt exhilarated, for the high alpine valley was marvellously still, 
stars twinkled over the torn ridges of the dent du midi where spectral snows gleamed against rocks that looked like solid ink and the keen air smelt of pine forest dew-soaked pastures and freshly sawn wood he took it all in with a kind of bewildered delight for a few minutes while the other three passengers gave directions about their luggage and went to their rooms then he turned and walked over the coarse matting into the glare of the hall only just able to resist stopping to examine the big mountain map that hung upon the wall by the door and with a sudden disagreeable shock he came down from the ideal to the actual for at the inn the only inn there was no vacant room even the available sofas were occupied how stupid he had been not to write yet it had been impossible he remembered for he had come to the decision suddenly that morning in geneva enticed by the brilliance of the weather after a week of rain they talked endlessly this gold-braided porter and the hard-faced old woman her face was hard he noticed gesticulating all the time and pointing all about the village with suggestions that he ill understood for his french was limited and their patois was fearful there he might find a room or there but we are hélas full more full than we care about to-morrow perhaps if so-and-so give up their rooms and then with much shrugging of shoulders the hard-faced old woman stared at the gold-braided porter and the porter stared sleepily at the schoolmaster at length however by some process of hope he did not himself understand and following directions given by the old woman that were utterly unintelligible he went out into the street and walked towards a dark group of houses she had pointed out to him he only knew that he meant to thunder at a door and ask for a room he was too weary to think out details the porter half made to go with him but turned back at the last moment to speak with the old woman the houses sketched themselves dimly in the general blackness the air was cold the whole valley was filled with the rush and thunder of falling water he was thinking vaguely that the dawn could not be very far away and that he might even spend the night wandering in the woods when there was a sharp noise behind him and he turned to see a figure hurrying after him it was the porter running and in the little hall of the inn there began again a confused three-cornered conversation with frequent muttered colloquy and whispered asides in patois between the woman and the porter the net result of which was that if monsieur did not object there was a room after all on the first floor only it was in a sense engaged that is to say but the schoolmaster took the room without inquiring too closely into the puzzle that had somehow provided it so suddenly the ethics of hotel-keeping had nothing to do with him if the woman offered him quarters it was not for him to argue with her whether the said quarters were legitimately hers to offer but the porter evidently a little thrilled accompanied the guest up to the room and supplied in a mixture of french and english details omitted by the landlady and minturn the schoolmaster soon shared the thrill with him and found himself in the atmosphere of a possible tragedy 
all who know the peculiar excitement that belongs to high mountain valleys where dangerous climbing is a chief feature of the attractions will understand a certain faint element of high alarm that goes with the picture one looks up at the desolate soaring ridges and thinks involuntarily of the men who find their pleasure for days and nights together scaling perilous summits among the clouds and conquering inch by inch the icy peaks that forever shake their dark terror in the sky the atmosphere of adventure spiced with the possible horror of a very grim order of tragedy is inseparable from any imaginative contemplation of the scene and the idea minturn gleaned from the half-frightened porter lost nothing by his ignorance of the language this englishwoman the real occupant of the room had insisted on going without a guide she had left just before daybreak two days before the porter had seen her start and she had not returned the route was difficult and dangerous yet not impossible for a skilled climber even a solitary one and the englishwoman was an experienced mountaineer also she was self-willed careless of advice bored by warnings self-confident to a degree queer moreover for she kept entirely to herself and sometimes remained in her room with locked doors admitting no one for days together a crank evidently of the first water this much minturn gathered clearly enough from the porter's talk while his luggage was brought in and the room set to rights further too that the search party had gone out and might of course return at any moment in which case thus the room was empty yet still hers if monsieur did not object if the risk he ran of having to turn out suddenly in the night it was the loquacious porter who furnished the details that made the transaction questionable and minturn dismissed the loquacious porter as soon as possible and prepared to get into the hastily arranged bed and snatch all the hours of sleep he could before he was turned out at first it must be admitted he felt uncomfortable distinctly uncomfortable he was in someone else's room he had really no right to be there it was in the nature of an unwarrantable intrusion and while he unpacked he kept looking over his shoulder as though someone were watching him from the corners any moment it seemed he would hear a step in the passage a knock would come at the door the door would open and there he would see this vigorous englishwoman looking him up and down with anger worse still he could hear her voice asking him what he was doing in her room her bedroom of course he had an adequate explanation but still then reflecting that he was already half undressed the humour of it flashed for a second across his mind and he laughed quietly and at once after that laughter under his breath came the sudden sense of tragedy he had felt before perhaps even while he smiled her body lay broken and cold upon those awful heights the wind of snow playing over her hair her glazed eyes staring sightless up at the stars it made him shudder the sense of this woman whom he had never seen whose name even he did not know became extraordinarily real almost he could imagine that she was somewhere in the room with him hidden observing all he did he opened the door softly to put his boots outside and when he closed it again he turned the key 
Then he finished unpacking and distributed his few things about the room. It was soon done, for in the first place he had only a small gladstone and a knapsack, and secondly the only place where he could spread his clothes was the sofa. There was no chest of drawers, and the cupboard, an unusually large and solid one, was locked. The Englishwoman's things had evidently been hastily put away in it. The only sign of her recent presence was a bunch of faded alpenrosen standing in a glass jar upon the wash-hand stand. This and a certain faint perfume were all that remained. In spite, however, of these very slight evidences, the whole room was pervaded with a curious sense of occupancy that he found exceedingly distasteful. One moment the atmosphere seemed subtly charged with a just-left feeling, the next it was a queer awareness of still here that made him turn cold and look hurriedly behind him. Altogether, the room inspired him with a singular aversion, and the strength of this aversion seemed the only excuse for his tossing the faded flowers out of the window, and then hanging his mackintosh upon the cupboard door, in such a way as to screen it as much as possible from view. For the sight of that big, ugly cupboard, filled with the clothing of a woman who might then be beyond any further need of covering, thus his imagination insisted on picturing it, touched in him a startled sense of the incongruous that did not stop there but crept through his mind gradually till it merged somehow into a sense of a rather grotesque horror at any rate the sight of that cupboard was offensive and he covered it almost instinctively then turning out the electric light he got into bed but the instant the room was dark he realized that it was more than he could stand for with the blackness there came a sudden rush of cold that he found it hard to explain and the odd thing was that when he lit the candle beside his bed he noticed that his hand trembled this of course was too much his imagination was taking liberties and must be called to heel yet the way he called it to order was significant and its very deliberateness betrayed a mind that has already admitted fear and fear once in is difficult to dislodge he lay there upon his elbow in bed and carefully took note of all the objects in the room with the intention as it were of taking an inventory of everything his senses perceived then drawing a line adding them up finally and saying with decision that's all the room contains i've counted every single thing there is nothing more now i may sleep in peace and it was during this absurd process of enumerating the furniture of the room that the dreadful sense of distressing lassitude came over him that made it difficult even to finish counting it came swiftly yet with an amazing kind of violence that overwhelmed him softly and easily with a sensation of enervating weariness hard to describe and its first effect was to banish fear he no longer possessed enough energy to feel really afraid or nervous. The cold remained, but the alarm vanished, and into every corner of his usually vigorous personality crept the insidious poison of a muscular fatigue, at first, that in a few seconds it seemed translated itself into spiritual inertia. A sudden consciousness of the foolishness, the crass futility of life, 
of effort of fighting of all that makes life worth living shot into every fibre of his being and left him utterly weak a spirit of black pessimism that was not even vigorous enough to assert itself invaded the secret chambers of his heart every picture that presented itself to his mind came dressed in grey shadows those bored and sweating horses toiling up the ascent to nothing that hard-faced landlady taking so much trouble to let her desire for gain conquer her sense of morality for a few francs that gold-braided porter so talkative fussy energetic and so anxious to tell all he knew what was the use of them all and for himself what in the world was the good of all the labour and drudgery he went through in that preparatory school where he was junior master what could it lead to wherein lay the value of so much uncertain toil when the ultimate secrets of life were hidden and no one knew the final goal how foolish was effort discipline work how vain was pleasure how trivial the noblest life with a fearful jump that nearly upset the candle minturn pulled himself together such vicious thoughts were usually so remote from his normal character that the sudden vile invasion produced a swift reaction yet only for a moment instantly again the black depression descended upon him like a wave his work it could lead to nothing but the dreary labour of a small headmastership after all seemed as vain and foolish as his holiday in the alps what an idiot he had been to be sure to come out with a knapsack merely to work himself into a state of exhaustion climbing over toilsome mountains that led to nowhere resulting in nothing a dreariness of the grave possessed him life was a ghastly fraud religion childish humbug everything was merely a trap a trap of death a coloured toy that nature used as a decoy but a decoy for what for nothing there was no meaning in anything the only real thing was death and the happiest people were those who found it soonest then why wait for it to come he sprang out of bed thoroughly frightened this was horrible surely mere physical fatigue could not produce a world so black an outlook so dismal a cowardice that struck with such sudden hopelessness at the very roots of life for normally he was cheerful and strong full of the tides of healthy living and this appalling lassitude swept the very basis of his personality into nothingness and the desire for death it was like the development of a secondary personality he had read of course how certain persons who suffered shocks developed thereafter entirely different characteristics memory tastes and so forth it had all rather frightened him though scientific men vouched for it it was hardly to be believed yet here was a similar thing taking place in his own consciousness he was beyond question experiencing all the mental variations of someone else it was unmoral it was awful it was well after all at the same time it was uncommonly interesting and this interest he began to feel was the first sign of his returning normal self for to feel interest is to live and to love life he sprang into the middle of the room then switched on the electric light 
and the first thing that struck his eye was the big cupboard. "'Hello! There's that beastly cupboard!' he exclaimed to himself, involuntarily, yet aloud. It held all the clothes, the swinging skirts and coats and summer blouses, of the dead woman, for he knew now, somehow or other, that she was dead. At that moment, through the open windows, rushed the sound of falling water, bringing with it a vivid realization of the desolate snow-swept heights. He saw her, positively saw her, lying where she had fallen, the frost upon her cheeks, the snow-dust eddying about her hair and eyes, her broken limbs pushing against the lumps of ice. For a moment the sense of spiritual lassitude, of the emptiness of life, vanished before this picture of broken effort, of a small human force battling pluckily, yet in vain, against the impersonal and pitiless potencies of inanimate nature. And he found himself again, his normal self. Then instantly returned again that terrible sense of cold, nothingness, emptiness. And he found himself standing opposite the big cupboard where her clothes were. He wanted to see those clothes, things she had used and worn. Quite close he stood, almost touching it. The next second he had touched it, his knuckles struck upon the wood. Why he knocked is hard to say. It was an instinctive movement, probably. Something in his deepest self dictated it, ordered it. He knocked at the door, and the dull sound upon the wood into the stillness of that room brought horror. Why it should have done so, he found it hard to explain to himself, as why he should have felt impelled to knock. The fact remains that when he heard the faint reverberation inside the cupboard, it brought with it so vivid a realization of the woman's presence that he stood there shivering upon the floor with a dreadful sense of anticipation. He almost expected to hear an answering knock from within, the rustling of the hanging skirts, perhaps, or worse still, to see the locked door slowly open towards him. And from that moment he declares that in some way or other he must have partially lost control of himself, or at least of his better judgment, for he became possessed by such an overmastering desire to tear open that cupboard door and see the clothes within that he tried every key in the room in the vain effort to unlock it, and then finally, before he quite realized what he was doing, rang the bell. But having rung the bell for no obvious or intelligent reason at two o'clock in the morning, he then stood waiting in the middle of the floor for the servant to come, conscious for the first time that something outside his ordinary self had pushed him towards the act. It was almost like an internal voice that directed him, and thus, when at last steps came down the passage, and he faced the cross and sleepy chambermaid, amazed at being summoned at such an hour, he found no difficulty in the matter of what he should say. For the same power that insisted he should open the cupboard door also impelled him to utter words over which he apparently had no control. "'It's not you I rang for,' he said with decision and impatience. "'I want a man. Wake the porter and send him up to me at once. Hurry, I tell you, hurry!' And when the girl had gone, frightened at his earnestness, Minturn realized that the words surprised himself as much as they surprised her. 
until they were out of his mouth he had not known what exactly he was saying but now he understood that some force foreign to his own personality was using his mind and organs the black depression that had possessed him a few moments before was also part of it the powerful mood of this vanished woman had somehow momentarily taken possession of him communicated possibly by the atmosphere of things in the room still belonging to her but even now when the porter without coat or collar stood beside him in the room he did not understand why he insisted with a positive fury admitting no denial that the key of that cupboard must be found and the door instantly opened the scene was a curious one after some perplexed whispering with the chambermaid at the end of the passage the porter managed to find and produce the key in question neither he nor the girl knew clearly what this excited englishman was up to or why he was so passionately intent upon opening the cupboard at two o'clock in the morning they watched him with an air of wondering what was going to happen next but something of his curious earnestness even of his late fear communicated itself to them and the sound of the key grating in the lock made them both jump they held their breath as the creaking door swung slowly open all heard the clatter of that other key as it fell against the wooden floor within the cupboard had been locked from the inside but it was the scared housemaid from her position in the corridor who first saw and with a wild scream fell crashing against the banisters the porter made no attempt to save her the schoolmaster and himself made a simultaneous rush towards the door now wide open they too had seen there were no clothes skirts or blouses on the pegs but all by itself from an iron hook in the centre they saw the body of the englishwoman hanging by the neck the head bent horribly forwards the tongue protruding jarred by the movement of unlocking the body swung slowly round to face them pinned upon the inside of the door was a hotel envelope with the following words pencilled in straggling writing tired unhappy hopelessly depressed i cannot face life any longer all is black i must put an end to it i meant to do it on the mountains but was afraid i slipped back to my room unobserved this way is easiest and best end of story seven cain's atonement so many thousands today have deliberately put self aside and are ready to yield their lives for an ideal that it is not surprising if few of them should have registered experiences of a novel order for to step aside from self is to enter a larger world to be open to new impressions if powers of good exist in the universe at all they can hardly be inactive at the present time the case of two men who may be called jones and smith occurs to the mind in this connection whether a veil actually was lifted for a moment or whether the tension of long and terrible months resulted in an exultation of emotion the experience claims significance smith to whom the experience came holds the firm belief that it was real jones though it involved him too remained unaware 
it is a somewhat personal story their peculiar relationship dating from early youth a kind of unwilling antipathy was born between them yet an antipathy that had no touch of hate or even of dislike it was rather in the nature of an instinctive rivalry some tie operated that flung them ever into the same arena with strange persistence and ever as opponents an inevitable fate delighted to throw them together in a sense that made them rivals small as well as large affairs betrayed this malicious tendency of the gods it showed itself in earliest days at school at cambridge in travel even in house parties and the lighter social intercourse though distant cousins their families were not intimate and there was no obvious reason why their paths should fall so persistently together yet their paths did so crossing and recrossing in the way described sooner or later in all his undertakings smith would note the shadow of jones darkening the ground in front of him and later when called to the bar in his chosen profession he found most frequently that the learned counsel in opposition to him was the owner of this shadow jones in another matter too they became rivals for the same girl oddly enough attracted both and though she accepted neither offer of marriage during smith's lifetime the attitude between them was that of unwilling rivals for they were friends as well jones it appears was hardly aware that any rivalry existed he did not think of smith as an opponent and as an adversary never he did notice however the constantly recurring meetings for more than once he commented on them with good-humoured amusement smith on the other hand was conscious of a depth and strength in the tie that certainly intrigued him being of a thoughtful introspective nature he was keenly sensible of the strange competition in their lives and sought in various ways for its explanation though without success the desire to find out was very strong in him and this was natural enough owing to the singular fact that in all their battles he was the one to lose invariably jones got the best of every conflict smith always paid sometimes he paid with interest occasionally too he seemed forced to injure himself while contributing to his cousin's success it was very curious he reflected much upon it he wondered what the origin of their tie and rivalry might be but especially why it was that he invariably lost and why he was so often obliged to help his rival to the point even of his own detriment tempted to bitterness sometimes he did not yield to it however the relationship remained frank and pleasant if anything it deepened he remembered once for instance giving his cousin a chance introduction which yet led a little later to the third party offering certain evidence which lost him an important case jones of course winning it the third party too angry at being dragged into the case turned hostile to him thwarting various subsequent projects in no other way could jones have procured this particular evidence he did not know of its existence even that chance introduction did it all there was nothing the least dishonourable on the part of jones it was just the chance of the dice the dice were always loaded against smith and there were other instances of similar kind 
about this time moreover a singular feeling that had lain vaguely in his mind for some years past took more definite form it suddenly assumed the character of a conviction that yet had no evidence to support it a voice long whispering in the depths of him became much louder grew into a statement that he accepted without further ado i'm paying off a debt he phrased it an old old debt is being discharged i owe him this my help and so forth he accepted it that is as just and this certainty of justice kept sweet his heart and mind shutting the door on bitterness or envy the thought however though it recurred persistently with each encounter brought no explanation when the war broke out both offered their services as members of the o t c they got commissions quickly but it was a chance remark of smith's that made his friend join the very regiment he himself was in they trained together were in the same retreats and the same advances together their friendship deepened under the stress of circumstances the tie did not dissolve but strengthened it was indubitably real therefore then oddly enough they were both wounded in the same engagement and it was here the remarkable fate that jointly haunted them betrayed itself more clearly than in any previous incident of their long relationship smith was wounded in the act of protecting his cousin how it happened is confusing to a layman but each apparently was leading a bombing party and the two parties came together they found themselves shoulder to shoulder both brimmed with that pluck which is complete indifference to self they exchanged a word of excited greeting and the same second one of those rare opportunities of advantage presented itself which only the highest courage can make use of neither certainly was thinking of personal reward it was merely that each saw the chance by which instant heroism might gain a surprise advantage for their side the risk was heavy but there was a chance and success would mean a decisive result to say nothing of high distinction for the man who obtained it if he survived smith being a few yards ahead of his cousin had the moment in his grasp he was in the act of dashing forward when something made him pause a bomb in mid-air flung from the opposing trench was falling it seemed immediately above him he saw that it would just miss himself but land full upon his cousin whose head was turned the other way by stretching out his hand smith knew he could field it like a cricket ball there was an interval of a second and a half he judged he hesitated perhaps a quarter of a second then he acted he caught it it was the obvious thing to do he flung it back into the opposing trench the rapidity of thought is hard to realize in that second and a half smith was aware of many things he saved his cousin's life unquestionably unquestionably also joan seized the opportunity that otherwise was his cousin's but it was neither of these reflections that filled smith's mind the dominant impression was another it flashed into actual words inside his excited brain i must risk it i owe it to him and more besides he was further aware of another impulse than the obvious one in the first fraction of a second it was overwhelmingly established and it was this that the entire episode was familiar to him a subtle familiarity was present 
all this had happened before he had already somewhere somehow seen death descending upon his cousin from the air yet with a difference the difference escaped him the familiarity was vivid that he missed the deadly detonators in making the catch or that the fuse delayed he called good luck he only remembers that he flung the gruesome weapon back whence it had come and that its explosion in the opposite trench materially helped his cousin to find glory in the place of death the slight delay however resulted in his receiving a bullet through the chest a bullet he would not otherwise have received presumably it was some days later gravely wounded that he discovered his cousin in another bed across the darkened floor they exchanged remarks jones was already decorated it seems having snatched success from his cousin's hands while little aware whose help had made it easier and once again there stole across the inmost mind of smith that strange insistent whisper i owed it to him but by god i owe more than that i mean to pay it too there was not a trace of bitterness or envy now only this profound conviction of obscurest origin that it was right and absolutely just full honest repayment of a debt incurred some ancient balance of account was being settled there was no chance injustice and caprice played no role at all and a deeper understanding of life's ironies crept into him for if everything was just there was no room for whimpering and the voice persisted above the sound of busy footsteps in the ward i owe it i'll pay it gladly through the pain and weakness the whisper died away he was exhausted there were periods of unconsciousness but there were periods of half-consciousness as well then flashes of another kind of consciousness altogether when bathed in high soft light he was aware of things he could not quite account for he saw it was absolutely real only the critical faculty was gone he did not question what he saw as he stared across at his cousin's bed he knew perhaps the beaten worn-out body let something through at last the nerves overstrained to numbness lay very still the physical system battered and depleted made no cry the clamour of the flesh was hushed he was aware however of an undeniable exaltation of the spirit in him as he lay and gazed towards his cousin's bed across the night of time it seemed to him the picture stole before his inner eye with a certainty that left no room for doubt it was not the cells of memory in his brain of to-day that gave up their dead it was the eternal self in him that remembered and understood the soul with that satisfaction which is born of full comprehension he watched the light glow and spread about the little bed thick matting deadened the footsteps of nurses orderlies doctors new cases were brought in old cases were carried out he ignored them he saw only the light above his cousin's bed grow stronger he lay still and stared it came neither from the ceiling nor the floor it unfolded like a cloud of shining smoke and the little lamp the sheets the figure framed between them all these slid cleverly away and vanished utterly 
he stood in another place that had lain behind all these appearances a landscape with wooded hills a foaming river the sun just sinking below the forest and dusk creeping from a gorge along the lonely banks in the warm air there was a perfume of great flowers and heavy-scented trees there were fireflies and the taste of spray from the tumbling river was on his lips across the water a large bird flapped its heavy wings as it moved downstream to find another fishing place for he and his companion had disturbed it as they broke out of the thick foliage and reached the river bank the companion moreover was his brother they ever hunted together there was a passionate link between them born of blood and of affection they were twins it all was as clear as though of yesterday in his heart was the lust of the hunt in his blood was the lust of woman and thick behind these lurked the jealousy and fierce desire of a primitive day but though clear as of yesterday he knew that it was of long long ago and his brother came up close beside him resting his bloody spear with a clattering sound against the boulders on the shore he saw the gleaming of the metal in the sunset he saw the shining glitter of the spray upon the boulders he saw his brother's eyes look straight into his own and in them shone a light that was neither the reflection of the sunset nor the excitement of the hunt just over it escaped us said his brother yet i know my first spear struck it followed the fawn that crossed was the reply besides we came downwind thus giving it warning our flocks at any rate are safer the other laughed significantly it is not the safety of our flocks that troubles me just now brother he interrupted eagerly while the light burned more deeply in his eyes it is rather that she waits for me by the fire across the river and that i would get to her with your help added to my love he went on in a trusting voice the gods have shown me the favour of true happiness he pointed with his spear to a camp-fire on the farther bank turning his head as he strode to plunge into the stream and swim across for an instant then the other felt his natural love turn into bitter hate his own fierce passion unconfessed concealed burst into instant flame that the girl should become his brother's wife sent the blood surging through his veins in fury he felt his life and all that he desired go down in ashes he watched his brother stride towards the water the deerskin cast across one naked shoulder when another object caught his practised eye in mid-air it passed suddenly like a shining gleam it seemed to hang a second then it swept swiftly forward past his head and downward it had leaped with a blazing fury from the overhanging bank behind he saw the blood still streaming from its wounded flank it must land he saw it with a secret awful pleasure full upon the striding figure whose head was turned away the swiftness of that leap however was not so swift but that he could easily have used his spear indeed he gripped it strongly his skill his strength his aim he knew them well enough but hate and love fastening upon his heart held all his muscles still he hesitated he was no murderer yet he paused 
he heard the roar the ugly thud the crash the cry for help too late and when an instant afterwards his steel plunged into the great beast's heart the human heart and life he might have saved lay still forever he heard the water rushing past an icy wind came down the gorge against his naked back he saw the fire shine upon the further bank and the figure of a girl in skins was wading across seeking out the shallow places in the dusk and calling wildly as she came then darkness hid the entire landscape yet a darkness that was deeper bluer than the velvet of the night alone and he shrieked aloud in his remorseful anguish may the gods forgive me for i did not mean it oh that i might undo that i might repay that his cries disturbed the weary occupants in more than one bed is certain, but he remembers chiefly that a nurse was quickly by his side, and that something she gave him soothed his violent pain, and helped him into deeper sleep again. There was, he noticed anyhow, no longer the soft, clear, blazing light about his cousin's bed. He saw only the faint glitter of the oil lamps down the length of the great room and some weeks later he went back to fight. The picture, however, never left his memory. It stayed with him as an actual reality that was neither delusion nor hallucination. He believed that he understood at last the meaning of the tie that had fettered him and puzzled him so long. The memory of those far-off days of shepherding beneath the stars of long ago remained vividly beside him. He kept his secret, however, in many a talk with his cousin beneath the nearer stars of Flanders, no word of it ever passed his lips. The friendship between them, meanwhile, experienced a curious deepening, though unacknowledged in any spoken words. Smith, at any rate on his side, put into it an affection that was a brave man's love. He watched over his cousin. In the fighting especially, when possible, he sought to protect and shield him, regardless of his own personal safety. He delighted secretly in the honors his cousin had already won. He himself was not yet even mentioned in dispatches, and no public distinction of any kind had come his way. His V.C. eventually, well, he was no longer occupying his body when it was bestowed. He had already left. He was now conscious, possibly, of other experiences besides that one of ancient primitive days when he and his brother were shepherding beneath other stars, but the reckless heroism which saved his cousin under fire may later enshrine another memory which at some far future time shall reawaken as a hallucination from a past that to-day is called the present, the notion at any rate flashed across his mind before he left. End of story eight.